Welcome to the Better Clinician Podcast with myself, Ben Cormack, and also Adam Meekins. The Better Clinician Project brings you high-quality education at a ridiculously low price. This podcast will bring you topics that are relevant to modern clinical practice, all done with a bit of fun and humour. Nothing in this podcast constitutes medical advice. So, BCPers, we are back for another ramble, musing, just general, you know, dive into the the dark crevices of mine and Adam's minds, which I think are particularly dark and crevice-full. <laughs> a bit dank and a bit smelly in places as well. Absolutely. Um, so we are responding as usual to the uh, questions from the BCPers, um, and we've got a few good ones this month. Yeah, we've had a bit more engagement on the old uh, Facebook page, so it's good to see. Good to see people giving us some uh, quite challenging questions to consider and discuss and debate. So looking forward to this one. should be interesting. Yeah, I posted this on a Friday afternoon, and I didn't expect – I thought it would be, you know, sleepy town central. But actually there seems to – you know, people uh, were all fired up and ready to go on a Friday afternoon in August. Seems strange, don't you? you think people have better things to do? But there we go. Must be a reflection of the state. Must be a reflection of the state of uh, the situation currently in the world. Maybe. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, first one we have um, is from Paul Minty, and I think Paul is down. I may have this completely wrong, but I think you should have checked down. the facts before you start pulling things out of your ass, then, shouldn't you? Yes, he does. He lives down in the West Country was exactly what I was going to say. Okay. So Paul's down in Bath um, in Somerset. And All right, my lover. Um, Bath is a beautiful town, but a horror show to get to. <laughs> oh, it's a nightmare journey. That bloody M4, M5 route is, uh, yeah, is a bit, bit dubious at the best of times. But yeah, yeah. I do love the accent down that air, the West Country. Gert Lush. Oh, it's Gert Lush, my love. Right there, my lover. And there was in no way any kind of cartoonish characterization there of the West Country accent. Uh, I remember going into a petrol station. Uh, I think it was on the M4, literally just outside of Bath. And as I say, the lady behind there, all right there, my lover. And I was like, oh, that's very nice. You thought you were in luck. Yeah. 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 I don't think she meant it in the way that you wanted her to mean it. Anyway, what what does Paul have to say? Well, he says he starts off by it's a bit of a ramble. Um, and, you know, that fits with us perfectly, doesn't it? The uh, yeah, the, the ramble. The rambling pair that we want. So I'm going to boil it down. I'm going to unramble it a little bit. So put it into a synopsis. Yes. Yeah, so I'm going to try and just, uh, you know, make it a little more efficient. So really, it boils down to the whole process of sense making, narrative, etc. And Paul essentially is asking, is it wrong to create a narrative that helps a patient make sense of their pain situation that may not be inherently true? Yeah, good question. Quite a an ethical and moral debatable dilemma and discussion to have here. How accurate do you need to be? Um, I think the first thing, 
will say, let's give an example. So, you know, a lot of people sometimes are told their pain is because, let's say, they've got their fascia has adhered to something or they've got a bone or a body position out of place, which we know is just not true <laughs> or very, very unlikely to be true. I don't think we can ever say categorically it doesn't happen, but the the, the basic science says, you know, you can't subluxed your pelvis without a significant trauma or some preceding major event that will have a lot of signs and features other than you just having a bit of pain when you're bending over or walking. Yet a lot of people are told that this is the cause of why they've got pain. So is it okay to give people those narratives? Um, I think the simple answer is no. I think those explanations do come with some potential risks and harms i know it can sometimes be a quick and simple way to explain things which is why i think you know a lot of people are using these narratives because they are simple they're biomechanically plausible they're yeah. easy to explain and for people to rationalize and grasp onto but if you look at the other side of the coin there are negatives and harms that can also be associated with these narratives as well so i think you know when it comes to these biomechanical untruths no but then moving on from that you know how much accuracy do we have to be or how much accuracy can we actually give to patients to explain their pain um i think there's a lot of uncertainty here a lot of the time particularly again if we're talking about the majority of back pain that we see that doesn't have any clear, reliable, identifiable, singular structural cause, how do you get a message across to a patient uh, that they can understand and rationalise where their pain's coming from? Do we have to go into all the intricacies of neuroscience and pain science and glial cells and substance P's and all those sort of things? Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't think that's necessary at all. So I don't think we have to be, again, 100% accurate, 100% true. But I do think we have to try to be as clear, concise, and as accurate as possible, but also in a way that the patient can understand, which ain't fucking easy at all to do a lot of the time. No, well, I, I think what I like there is you pointed out that we probably have a lot of these narratives that make sense in very, very simplistic ways that are very easy to grasp that are just blatantly not correct. You know, we have all these ideas about posture and syndromes and subluxations and all of these different things. Um, and we don't have, and they make complete mechanical sense but they don't make very, very good sense when we look at the evidence and these type of things. And I totally understand why they exist, because people come in, one of the things that they want is an answer for their problem. So it's easy to say, well, your hip flexor's tight. It makes your bum stick out. That puts stress on your lower back and your lower back hurts. And it's a very easy, simplistic discussion. Now, the other end of the spectrum that you talked about is does anyone care if I conflate nociception and pain? <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, my God, Ben conflated nociception and pain. You can never treat anyone ever again, right? And that's the other end of the spectrum, isn't it? That's this ultra kind of, you know, this, this ultra all the time. Yeah, this, oh, my God, this inaccuracy will kill a patient. Um, wh whereas 
what I think we need to do is we need to, and I think Paul's used a nice term there, which is narrative. And I think we don't shouldn't confuse the idea of causation and narrative. Because sometimes when we look at narrative, it doesn't always mean it has to be about the cause, if that makes sense. Yeah. Maybe the narrative. So someone comes into me, non-specific lower back pain. I can tell you a lot about lower back pain, prognostic factors, how long it might last for, you know, features, all these different things. And that creates a narrative. But maybe that narrative doesn't always include a cast iron causative factor. Um, so, so I think that we can, you know, do really, really well with a really good narrative. And that really has a positive impact for a lot of people, not always on their level of pain, but their level of worry, their level of function, all of these other things. Um, does that always need to be about causation? And I think where we get unstuck is when people come up with all these, you know, me mechanistic models of causation. Um, and sometimes that totally makes sense to patients. They go, ding, oh my God, I can totally get my hip flexor is causing my back pain. But for, for that sense making that's positive, do we get negative things further down the line? You know, uh, you know, the, uh, something being out of place is a great example. You know, oh my God, that makes complete sense. We've created a narrative that tells me I've explained the problem. But now that narrative may have caused downstream effects. Um, so, so I think that the narrative has to be accurate enough to be helpful, um, not just making sense. You know, there's actually a paper on this about quick intuitive sense making can often be damaging and dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and again, I think the other point to discuss here is, as I think, you know, the narrative is also has to be has to be aligned with the patient's expectations of what they think is going to needed to be done to help them. So, you know, Paul's using an example here about shoulder impingement, about a chromium shape or bony osteophytes coming off the acromion, causing them to have this painful arc on elevation of the arm. And we know it's just not that simple. You know that, you know, subacromial shoulder pain isn't only about the a chromium shape and the biomechanical features there. But, you know, what we also know is that subacromial decompression operations help people with subacromial shoulder pain a lot. It's just there's a lot of uncertainty in the mechanisms of <laughs> how, how. Yeah, exactly. The <laughs> mechanisms of how this operation helps people is still unclear. It's uncertain. Yeah. It's not just as simple as shaving the acromion, increasing the subacromial space. But, 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 but if this patient has this narrative and has been told that they've got this wrong acromium they've got this bony acromium and they are wanting to have surgery to to fix it obviously there's a narrative there that aligns with hopefully good expectations of outcome because they're going to go and get this surgery and they're going to get this decompression and they're going to hopefully say okay well now this issue has been corrected and it's been fixed therefore my shoulder is going to start to feel better so you are probably well-placed to answer this question for me. Is there any research that correlates patient understanding narrative expectations with the outcome from surgical surgical procedures? Not not for shoulder subacromial decompression right. surgery, but it is a question that I ask, you know, and, you know, yeah. when that seesaw trial came out, you know, that looked at the placebo operation versus the true decompression operation. One of the things that I'd love them to do, and I don't know why more placebo trials don't do this, is ask the, the patient. Expectations. No, not the, well, that expectation as well, but ask the patient, did you have any idea of which group you're in? 
Right. Did you okay. think you had the placebo operation or did you think you had the true operation? And see whether there's any uh, associations there between outcomes and beliefs about what they believe they've actually had done. Did they think they've only had the pretend operation or the true operation? Because I think that does hugely, you say, affect yeah. how the patient feels and how they progress and all those other things, you know. And the other thing we see with that seesaw trial was that huge crossover, you know, in the control group. Yeah, a, yeah. a lot, you a, see lot that of people, a lot, don't you? These yeah, and they say I don't blame people. People have got this expectation that they need to have this operation because of the narratives that's been explained around it. When they're put into a control group that's not having the operation, they they get a bit pissed off, and so they cross over into the surgical arm. So yeah, yeah I uh, I think you know there's there's that to consider. You know, do we? And that's something I I sometimes struggle with when I'm talking to patients, when they're discussing their options for this ongoing persistent shoulder pain they've had for the last two or three years. And they are considering surgery because they've tried everything else. You know, they've tried multiple injections. They've tried physiotherapy. They've tried Reiki healing. They've tried laser guided cupping. You know, they've done everything and they've still got this problem. And the only thing they haven't tried is arthroscopic shoulder surgery. And so, you know, their expectations are quite high okay this is the last thing this is something that i'm hopefully is going to help me and again the research shows us this operation does it 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 doesn't help people through the mechanisms we first thought it does but it does help people yeah but being an ethical and you know conscientious healthcare provider i i discuss the uncertainties with the patient around the operation i say to them you know yes this you are a candidate you are definitely somebody that could consider going through this operation but you have to consider that there is some uncertainty about how it helps people. We know it does, but we're just not quite sure how. And at the back of my mind, I'm thinking, as I'm explaining this to the patient, am I now undermining, am I now adversely affecting their outcomes because I am being too true, I'm being too honest, I'm being too accurate, I'm giving them too much information that might be not needed or necessary for them to make an informed decision. It's a bit of a, again, a dilemma that I have sometimes. Well, I suppose that just shows how much variability there is in, you know, this contextual stuff, doesn't it? That, you know, it's just literally how can you ever know? Does the person even know how the processing occurs? And do you see what I mean? It's yeah. just literally the unknowable. Um, and I suppose, yeah, how do you, uh, how do we make that more knowable? I'm not sure. Or do we just become more tolerant of, of the unknowability? Um, there was that bit of research from Andy Cuff, who we've had on uh, the BCP before. And I know that uh, and you can correct me here if I've got this wrong. Did they have a couple of groups and they explained um, impingement in a couple of different ways and then looked to see which what the groups would opt for? So whether it was surgical intervention or conservative care, is that correct? No, it was just asking patients what their perceptions were of this term shoulder impingement. Uh, and it was just a qualitative study looking for any themes that came out about what they thought would be the best treatment for this condition. Uh, uh, right. Okay. They they thought what was the best treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, and again, there was lots of, you know, uh, themes that came out that the patients and quite rightly, and I don't blame them, they say, well, if I've got a, a bone that's the wrong yeah, shape yeah, or yeah, it's sticking yeah. out, then surely, you know, physio is not going to do anything for yeah. it. Therefore, yes, I, exactly. need, I need surgical interventions. So, yeah. That's yeah, pretty so much the, what, what Andy Cuff's trial showed is that, and that means a lot of people are probably going to seek subacromial decompression surgery based on that narrative that's given to them. 
Yeah. So the more biomechanical your perception of the problem, the more biomechanical your perception of the need of an intervention, yeah. basically. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose that ties quite nicely into what Paul's saying, doesn't it? Um, you know, it, it is it, lots of people would have made sense of their problem Absolutely. mechanically and it influences them to seek a mechanical intervention. So, yeah, so is that wrong sense-making? I, I, I don't know, but I suppose it's... Uh, a... I don't think you can call it wrong. I just think yeah. you can call it a, a different way to explain something that's uncertain, you know? Yeah. And, and and who's to say that, you know, shaving the acromion in some people isn't the mechanism that yeah. alleviates their, their pain? We can't, we can't categorically say that. We haven't got strong evidence to say it definitely but, isn't this. But we can say... That mechanism obviously doesn't exist in everyone because we don't have a hundred percent success rate. So it's it's so, not yeah. the only explanation. It's probably yeah. you know low down on the on the potential mechanisms, but it, we we haven't been able to rule it out completely. Yeah, uh, in some situations, for some people, some of the times. But you know, creating again, giving people a positive narrative around the treatment that they are wanting to have, I think, will give a positive or more successful outcome at the end. Absolutely. And, you know, the classic one, again, you know, is when we're dealing with people with fear of bending over and pain and stuff along those lines. You know, I've had some pretty good successes in trying to get people that have got a lot of reluctance to move and the fear of damaging and harming themselves. And, you know, you finally convince them after, you know, lots of different attempts to show them that, you know, it's not as bad as it is. And you you change their narrative, you change their understanding and, uh, you know, you get people to get good outcomes because of that. So. I'm sure it's the same when people do it with injections and surgery and laser guided cupping as well. Yeah, I think I'd finish on that one. I just think that narratives probably are, you know, quite individual to what that person's been exposed to, their level of education, their knowledge of the problem, you know, the people that are around them. So I think that's one of the problems with narratives and sense making is that they're probably reasonably unique in a lot of ways and uh, and that provides a challenge. Right. So moving on, we've got one from, I don't know, this is from Robust to Resilient Injury Clinic um, on the, on the, uh, on the Facebook handle. I don't know. You'll have to tell us your name at some point. It's um, not Art Renner, as I thought it was. No. Yeah, I think oh, Adam oh, thought it was a strange Irish name because obviously some Irish names are reasonably, to us plebs, are reasonably, uh, you know, incomprehensible. I still the, don't know the, how to, you spell Siobhan with a B and an H, but there we go. Mate, I, I don't get involved, you know. but Aoife with, uh, with an a, an I, and an E, and an O, you know, it just, it, it, yeah, Irish names. A-O-I-F-E, that is, isn't it? Aoife begins with an A. A-O-I-F-E, I think you spell it. Yeah, Aoife, yeah, yeah, that one. Thought. You had all the letters, but maybe not in the right order. My dyslexic tendencies are coming in. <laughs> so, yeah, but so could you imagine? Write words down as well. <laughs> Could you imagine punishing a dyslexic by making them pronounce Irish names? Maybe they get them right. I don't know. Or even funny enough, <laughs> just get them to write dyslexic. You know, that tends to <laughs> that tends to confuse a dyslexic. Oh, you're a cruel. Of, bastard, which, of which I am partly dyslexic. I'm sure of it. Not addict diagnosed, but I'm sure I've got a touch of it. Yeah, me too. I think actually. So um, they've asked, probably been covered, but how to convince patients they aren't out of alignment 
or their previous clinician wasn't putting their spine, hips, lungs back into place. Um, and I think this ties very nicely into the other comment, because at some point someone has made sense of their problem, given them the narrative that their spine is out of place and the fix is we need to put it back in. Yeah, again, this can be a bit of a minefield. And uh, again, I've made some pretty horrible errors in trying to navigate this situation i think the the thing that i've learned from my failures is when you are doing this don't go in too hard too robustly with your new different explanation and narrative and certainly don't start to chastise or demonize the other clinician that may have given these narratives to the the patient either because i i've often totally misunderstood or not appreciated the relationship that this person has with the other clinician that's given them these outdated narratives and they trust and respect them and like them more than they trust and like and respect me and so they think i'm an idiot rather than the other person who's given them these shitty explanations yeah. about things being out of place etc so don't don't definitely demonize or chastise other clinicians straight away you may want to not do that at all or wait until the patient has got a better relationship and trust and faith in you uh, and the other thing to be careful of is don't make patients feel silly or stupid for being yeah. Yeah. misinformed because again i think that's quite a common kickback effect that we see is that when patients are given a different narrative and an explanation about why they've got pain rather than the simple one that is wrong and inaccurate they can feel a bit stupid. They can feel a bit, oh, my God, why was I so naive? Why was I so yeah, yeah, silly? Yeah. And why couldn't I spot that, you know? And so that can sometimes make them feel, yeah, a bit ashamed and embarrassed. And then that can have negative consequences for your relationship with them going forward. So it's a bit of a minefield. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a sunken cost fallacy, isn't it? People have pumped money into, you know, various practitioners doing these type of things. And you look back and you think, oh, I've spent like 10 grand having my spine put back in. Would I prefer just to believe I was doing the right thing? Yeah. Um, and I suppose that, you know, comes back to someone's wrong on the internet type of th situation, you know. Oh, my God, this, this you know, this person needs to have their concepts challenged or they need to have their, you know, theories reconstructed or, you know, this the whole kind of, you know, CBT challenging you know, kind of beliefs and cognitive restructuring and all of these other type of things. Actually, the kickback might be that person just thinks you're a bit of a dick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you see what I mean? And that and that doesn't help. So I think one of the problems is we try to convince people a bit too hard and yeah, a bit and too, too quickly as well. It comes like a battle, doesn't it? Yeah. Was it the writing reflex, as they often yeah. say as well? You know, you've got some information that you know is more correct and accurate than somebody else's, and your instinct and urge is to let them know that as soon as you possibly can to demonstrate how right and correct and brainy and better than you are from the other person. So Yeah, we've got the answer, and they, I need to give it to you, and you I'll need you. to believe me. Yeah, and, and I think that often creates – it's brilliant from an informational perspective, and this is one of the problems with science as a whole, isn't it, that, you know, science doesn't care about your feelings, but you care about your feelings. Yeah. <laughs> and therein the problem lies. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a shitty term, that is. I, I understand yeah. what they're trying to say, but, you know, yeah. you, when you're dealing with human beings who interpret and use science, you can't be that yes. cold and clinical – 
with it. You have to you have to recognise the human side of it. And I know I'm going to put my hands up here and say I've been guilty of this when I've been not challenging patients, but definitely challenging clinicians with their beliefs yes. and expectations. You know, I've gone in way too hard sometimes and been yeah. a way too much of a bit of a knobhead in trying to challenge people's understandings about what they're doing with their manual therapy and, and not appreciating, as you said, that sunk cost fallacy that a lot of people have, you know. And, and then I look back and I think to myself, well, I was exactly the same when I found this out from other people. I I got very, not defensive, I got very pissed off and angry. And so I can totally understand now why a lot of other therapists do when they they are challenged cognitively about what's going on and what their special skills are or are not, as they may be. And uh, yeah. as I say, it's not just with patients. We've got to also consider this, uh, this these effects with uh, other clinicians and therapists as well. Yeah, well, I think we have all these people out there that are quite uncertain about practice and doing things. And, you know, they look around and probably they're looking out for new ideas and new information. And then we might have all these people that are actually really quite certain. And the problem is this information gets thrust on them. And, you know, these people that are uncertain, that are looking for new ideas might be very receptive. These other people who aren't so certain and not really asking you, Suddenly, this is thrust upon them. And I think there's a, you know, can you understand? I, I'm not saying they're right. I'm not saying it's right. But I can understand why people don't always react and turn around and go, oh, my God, Adam, thank you so much for destroying my practice, ruining my years of learning and making me feel totally inadequate. I thank you so much. What's the next step? Yeah. How, how can I pay you? Can I send you some money yeah. in the post? Please? Yeah, because <laughs> I'm going to have to sell my house Can I to fund the rest of my life. Can I send you some of it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so so I think we've all been guilty of that. And then, you know, we look back and I suppose some people would say clinicians have a duty to be scientifically informed. Yeah. You know, that might be an argument. Yeah, I, I, it is an argument. And, you know, I, you know, ignorance of information is is something that we're all guilty of. You know, we've got limited amounts of cognitive ability and iq we can only retain so much information but you know if you are working in a field you should be able to have higher levels of information and understanding compared to you know yeah. most people so you know that that's that's the part of you being in a specialist field is you've spent extra yeah. time learning stuff so you don't have to know everything but you should be able to you know, know the basics and you should be able to, you know, know what's more likely to be correct and accurate over what's more likely to be bullshit and nonsense. So, yes, yeah. I do. I do appreciate, you know, ignorance is a reason for why people carry on doing stupid stuff and explaining things ridiculously. Um, but it's not only it's not an excuse in isolation. I think, you know, it yeah. depends yeah. on lots of different factors as well. But yeah, it's uh, it's something that does wind me up a lot when you say you still see clinicians out there that are, you know, twenty years in practice still doing stuff that is forty years out of fucking date, <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that that is just that is just negligence. That is just yeah. absolutely, you know, unexcusable. You know, I've I've got all the time in the world for somebody who's misunderstood or misinterpreted a research paper or read something slightly different or is in recognized or realized it slightly different from what i have that's fine but as i say when somebody's out there using these terms and analogies and explanations and narratives that are just 
crazily out of date, then yeah, there's there's no excuse for that in this day and age. No, look, I I think that there are some things that are constant in what we do, like Starling's law of the heart hasn't yeah, changed a, very much, fundamental right? And principles yeah, that don't gravity gravity hasn't changed much in like a while, has it? You know. Um, so I get there are some quite strong scientific principles that haven't changed. But would you want your heart surgeon doing the same operation in 1960 as they are doing today? Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? You wouldn't, would you? So the fundamental, the fundamentals of heart surgery, or I don't know if they're the same or not the same. I suppose you're going in and you're, you know, taking gunk out and making things bigger and blood flow better, right? I'm definitely no expert here. The concept That's exactly of what's... how the cardiothoracic surgeons explain this, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And the concepts, I'm sure, are very similar to they were 50 years ago. Yeah. But are the techniques, is the technology, is our understanding yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of these things, you know, different? And I think that's, a, you know, we have to say if you learn Maitland, you know, at university, is it going to be exactly the same today with our understanding of lots of different things? I would say probably not. And that's one of the things that gets me is sometimes manual therapy is a great example. We have totally new explanations for why it helps, but none of the techniques have really changed. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to carry on practicing and using it in exactly the same way. Yeah, but we give a different narrative. And for me, that makes no sense. Surely the narrative should change the expl the application, but... I mean, you could say the same with therapeutic exercise, I think. Yeah, you're right there. You could say, again, it's uh, it's guilty in, in both the passive and the active interventions yeah. that we use as therapists. Yep. Two, two good questions there. So one last one from Bob. Bob always sneaks in, doesn't he? He's a sneaky Netherlands dude. Good old Bob. Good old Bob. Did Bob's you know nice the and regular. bit like me in the morning when I get up. Nice and regular. Did you know the British once spread a rumour in the 17th century that the Dutch were actually made of cheese? <laughs> they did. <laughs> it was actually uh, a rumour that they spread, that, 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 that spread around, because I think we were at war with the Dutch back back then. There were some like kind of Dutch wars going on. And Where we spread did you a find that useless bit of information? I was actually, I know, it's terribly useless, isn't it? I was actually reading like a historical fiction book, The Shard Lake, series and it was it was just a funny Did little thing you in there. reading bloody outside of uh physiotherapy and health and fitness eh? oh my god you mean i actually have interest but, but i want bob to know that i don't believe it i don't believe they're all made of cheese just some of them um but bob was asking the question have you treated family or friends um yes to both um and it said did you change your way of practice um Bob says, I try to avoid treating people close to me, saying, get your ass in gear. My explanation is always, give it time. Give it a few <laughs> weeks, it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, there's that old saying in, in healthcare, never treat friends or family. And uh, and I think it is a good saying. You know, I do think there are some problems of, uh, of treating those close to you. One is because they often don't believe what you say, I think. <laughs> So I had this on Sunday. One of the boys that I played tennis with was moaning about his arm, right? Said he had pain going down his arm. Um, I said, I'll have a look for you, Michael, if you want. Um, and he said, no, no, one of the other lads said it's probably this. And this is a guy who works in construction. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I was just like, fine, no worries. Yeah. You could have the guy who does this for a living and yeah, teaches yeah, yeah, and all yeah. these other things, or you can have Mark who works in construction uh, diagnose your problem for you. Yeah. Um, and that kind of put it down to me in a nutshell. Yeah, no, I, th- I find that whenever a family member asks me for a bit of advice and guidance and, you know, you, you ask a few questions around it and you you exclude anything majorly serious or sinister and as you say, you normally just say, it'll be okay, nothing here to worry about, give it some time. Yeah. They'll be like, is that it? Is that is that is that all it is? No, it can't, it can't be that. It must, surely you must give me a bit more information or understand things a bit more or do something to it. So I often find that say, it's uh, it doesn't often go well, so... No, I have a rule. Don't treat friends or family. If anybody asks me any questions about anything, I'll say, yeah, you could book yourself in and we can do an assessment and everything. But it's uh, 75 quid an hour and uh, I expect payment up front as well, <laughs> particularly if it's like a family barbecue spots. or gathering as well. I'm like, <laughs> nah, not the time and the place now, I said, but you can book yourself in next week. I've got a slot available, but it is 75 quid and that is family rate as well. That is discounted. Yeah. So before you ask, uh, you're more than welcome to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it funny that they that that your people close to you just don't for some reason your any expertise you have goes right out the window doesn't it it's like literally bob down the pub alan down the pub he's got much better handle on these things than you know than you have (laughs) yeah i think it's again it's that factor when you live with somebody and you've seen them at the worst and you've seen them in some compromising positions you know your your perception of them as being skilled and specialized when you've heard them emptying their bowels first thing in the morning for the last 10 years or so starts to make you look a little bit differently at that person rather than some esteemed specialist in an area yeah yeah fair this enough. is just my husband who's got terrible toilet habits yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> my wife would definitely vouch for that. the deepest i've heard his deepest darkest thoughts and that's invalidated any of your expertise absolutely good well we have a bunch of um pretty good questions yeah, good um, thoughtful Thursday, that one. Made me think Thursday. and uh, ruminate a little bit. Yeah, good. Ruminate, I like it. Um, very laconic, very thoughtful. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Erner Island. Um, and uh, thank you, Bob. Little shout out to Vigiliano for asking. Shout out to Martin making his usual um, inappropriate comments. Uh, Michael, <laughs> Michael Jacobek. He got a honourable mention there. We nearly got to that question. Matt Parcel um, uh, and Kirsten, Kirsten, thank you all for asking. We we uh, just didn't have time to get to all of them. Um, but next month, please ask again and uh, and we'll get to them. So our pleasure. Um, and we will see you all soon. Thank you for listening to the BCP podcast. If you would like to check out the BCP, please go to www.betterclinicianproject.com. There we have literally hundreds of videos on clinical topics, exercise examples for rehabilitation and research reviews alongside features such as Thoughtful Thursday. And please tune in again.